Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease. I have the joy of serving as the lead pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church, and it's a joy to have you all here this morning. And church, I want to tell you, um, thank you all for being on time this morning and like sitting closer, uh, because usually I feel like, I'm like, I'm sure I brushed my teeth. I'm sure of it. And you guys showed up on time. We, we corrected you last week. You showed up on time. If you're visiting with us, usually the first two songs, it's like a ghost town. And so if you're a visitor, you walk in and you're like, is this the right time and right place? But y'all did a wonderful job. I'm really encouraged. Thank you for that. And also, Gatlin, Mike, and Jack, uh, it's, it's an honor to have talented folks like yourselves here at the church who can write songs for our congregation as a prayer for our congregation. And I don't want to dismiss that. It's a joy. And I want to say thank you for that as well. All right, y'all ready to enjoy God and his word? At least fake it. All right. Mark 10, open with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 13. We're not skipping verses 1 through 12 because we're afraid to talk about divorce and remarriage and things like that here in the church. We've already spoken on that passage recently in a series called The Gospel in the Home, which you can find at c3.church. You like that? c3.church, or you can go to c3magnolia.org, go to our resource section, and you can go and find the the gospel in the home. And we talked on Mark chapter uh, 10, verses 1 through 12. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13 today. Now, the reason why we're doing 13 through 31 is because these two passages actually offer a good comparison and contrast of what it looks like to come to Jesus in a dependent state or come to Jesus in an entitled state. And so I want to pick up with you in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, he was angry, and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so even in Jesus' day, children were viewed more as possessions than they were as blessings. But the Bible had taught um, before that in the Psalms that children are a blessing of the Lord. Children have always been considered by God as a gift and as a blessing. But in the culture that they found themselves in at the time, in the culture that we find ourselves in today, by and large, children are seen as a distraction or a liability rather than a blessing. And so Jesus, uh, it's interesting, it doesn't say that he was annoyed, it says literally he was indignant, he was deeply angered by them distracting the bringing of children to Jesus. And, And Jesus then uses the child as an example for those who are around him, including his own disciples, saying that unless you come to me like they are, desperate, needy, non presuming, unless you come to Jesus that way, you will not enter the kingdom. Doesn't mean it's a call to stay childish in our faith, but what it does mean is that there's a posture of humility and of awareness that there is God's kingdom is greater than us and that we are the ones benefiting from it. We are not a benefit to it. Now, children are a benefit, but in this context, what he's talking about is, hey, let, let them come. Let them hear. Let them know. And that's why for us at Christ Community Church, it's so important to equip you and your, your families to love and disciple your children throughout the week. The greatest thing you can provide for your child is not just a good education or food or shelter. Those are all helpful and good things. The greatest thing you can provide for your children is an ongoing, life-living testimony of the faithfulness of God shown in and through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. Because ultimately, that's what your children need most. And that's what you need most as well. 
you only hear one thing from me today, I want you to hear this. The only way to enter God's kingdom is through full dependence on Jesus. It's the only way. And hear me, I'm not coming from a position of correction or of rebuke of those of you that are here. I'm not coming to be upset at you or to evoke shame or anything like that. But this is something that's important for your own soul and for the souls of your children. Your concern for your children of being well-educated and going to the right schools to do the right things so that they can get a good job and take care of themselves and hopefully contribute to the kingdom is not a bad thing unless it becomes an ultimate thing. And when that concern becomes an ultimate thing, then it becomes an idol. And when we pervert the good things and make them ultimate things, we start preaching a gospel that is no gospel at all. And in our context, in our community, we place high value on outward exterior performance and outward exterior possessions. And we diminish and devalue the cultivation and discipline of our souls. And so we see this idea of a child bringing a child to Jesus who can't really bring anything of value back to the young man that we see now who comes to Jesus, picking up in verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It would seem to me the guy's starting off on a good foot, right? He's coming up, he takes a posture of humility, he says, good teacher, I see that you're you're a good teacher, How how do I get, how do I get it? How do I obtain this? What can I do to be made right so that I can be in God's kingdom? What what else do I have to do? And, And so Jesus Sometimes Jesus, if you just read the Gospels, seems kind of like a jerk. And I'm not saying that to say he is. But he doesn't answer the way you would think like super kind, hippie Jesus would. Hey, bro. Way to kneel down, man. I mean, that's the Jesus we, we believe we worship a lot of times. It's like sissy Jesus, man. Come to me, all you who are weary. It's the same cat that flipped over tables and made a whip and started whipping it when people were falsely ripping people off in the midst of the temple. And so I, I think that Jesus could be confrontational, confrontational when need be. But it's interesting to watch how this interaction goes. Good teacher, what must I do to in, in, inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay. Well, I mean, that's not really the answer to the question this guy was asking, is it? Hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now, part of it could be that Jesus is leaning to what's called the messianic secret, meaning that Jesus, as Messiah, was not yet to be revealed to those around him until his resurrection from the dead. 
But part of it could also be that this man was attributing to Jesus that which he did not yet believe, but it was using that terminology so that he could get what he wanted from Jesus. You ever met a good salesperson before? They make you feel like a million bucks and you leave with stuff you don't want or can't afford. I remember, I like car audio. When I was little, when I was little, 15, 16 years old, I had big woofers in my Jeep Cherokee. But then I got married and I finally had to go out on my own and buy my own first car. And so I got me a, a super sweet Saturn four door with crank windows and a five speed. And so I went, I just wanted to get an alarm. I was living near Houston, and so I, I went into Mobile One Car Audio, and I went in there, and I was like, man, you know, hey, I, I need the cheapest alarm you have. I want the discount on my insurance. And he's like, well, hey, you know, you can use your money, or you can use ours. And so I filled out one of those free money forms. It took me a couple years of college to realize I have to pay that stuff back. He's like, oh my goodness, wow, you must be doing really well you're qualified for $2,700 at 19% interest. I wasn't really good at math at the time. And he's like, hey, how's that stereo working for you in your Saturn? I'm like, well, it's not, but you can kick the door and it doesn't dent. Well, hey, I got this, actually, this box that fits two tens, but it sounds like 12s. Got this amplifier, a really great deal. I got the stereo that goes up front and the alarm. And I can even add, put actuators so you don't have to manually lock your door anymore. I said, I need that. He said, but how much would that cost? He said, out the door at $26.50. I want to use your money. And I got me a new stereo in my Saturn. You could hear me coming from blocks away. My rap music. With my, with my stick-on hubcaps. I was, I was rolling pretty heavy, y'all. I had this appearance. I had this, this need to, to show that I, I was more than I, I was. So this guy comes up to Jesus, appealing, saying, hey, good teacher. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, Mark 1, against you. Are you calling me God? And he goes on, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. How often do we find ourselves defending ourselves and tracking all the good we do and using it as our ultimate defense for why we're not that bad or we're good people? I mean, not many of you have committed murder. But Jesus also says if you look at someone with anger or hatred, you're guilty of committing murder. The same intent, the same place that comes from is the same place that murder comes from. 
honor your father and your mother. Teenagers, you're guilty. Guarantee it. Adults, a lot of us are guilty too. Do not defraud, lie, and steal, and cheat. You might commit adultery. If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you have committed adultery. But here's what he said. Teacher, all these I've kept since my youth. Since I was little, I've followed these things. I've kept them. I'm good. I've got this. I've figured it out. I've worked it out. And Jesus goes and it's interesting, though. I want you to slow down because I've said this before. In the Gospel of Mark, it's a very quick gospel. Things change immediately, immediately, immediately. But when you start noticing smaller details, it's worth slowing down and enjoying. He says, so, so this guy says, okay, I, I've kept those. Yeah, got it. Then he goes on and says, and Jesus, looking at him, getting eyeball to eyeball, doesn't say Jesus sending him an email. I mean, confrontation via text is a way to do it. But he looks at him, he loved him. The sacrificial love. He loved him. That was the motive. It wasn't Jesus just being a smart aleck trying to put this guy down. He looked at him with deep compassion. He loved him and he said, you lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. This young man had a perceived value of what he thought the kingdom was worth. Yet when he heard the cost of the true kingdom, he walked away. Now, before those of you who are actually upper class start getting uncomfortable, let me say something. All of us, compared to the world, are rich. All of us. Even the most broke one of you in here, you're still wealthy compared to most of the world. Okay? So I want to begin with that. This isn't like, let me get mad at the rich people. This is me just trying to challenge us all. Many of us are educated, many of us have jobs, many of us have successful relationships, many of us have hidden struggles, but that the world mostly doesn't see. And I think it's a common occurrence when I meet with believers that they have this idea that, yeah, there was a time they needed to trust Jesus, and there, were time, there was a time that they needed to give some stuff up, but it's really kind of a gospel of Jesus plus blank. Jesus plus my generosity. Jesus plus my church attendance. Jesus plus good deeds. Jesus plus internet filters. That we add on to the gospel of grace and begin to once again position ourselves like the rich young man giving a checklist of why we have extra value for the kingdom when really we're bringing nothing. disheartened by the saying. So there's two things that he told this guy to do. One, sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Give it to those. Give it to those. You want to understand the kingdom? Give to someone that can't ever earn it themselves. So you want to experience the kingdom? First, go do that. Second of all, leave everything. 
follow me. All that good stuff of fulfilling the laws and keeping it, all the fruit of that, forsake it, follow me. He's saying, follow me. Come after me. But that's not what this guy wanted. People want easy gospel. People want, well, I prayed the prayer so I can live however I want because God will forgive me anyway. That's really no grace at all. It's a cheap grace at best. The grace of Jesus Christ is blood-bought, spirit-applied, word-informed, and life-transforming. It shifts our eyes from our ability and our possessions to our inability and his ability. The man walks away, and Jesus looks at his disciples. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, now, <laughs> these guys have been walking with Jesus for some time. And it's, it's interesting how Mark captures their continual shock at things Jesus says. And we have to remember that they were aiming towards a kingdom goal that would make them powerful on his right hand and on his left hand. They were hoping for this warrior Messiah to come overthrow the Roman Empire so that then they might rise into power with him. And Jesus is saying this crazy stuff. He's making the rich guy mad. He's saying all sorts of crazy stuff like, hey, the people that we value in our culture, they're not top in line for coming to Christ. When I used to travel and speak, I had several people come to me and say, man, if only Tiger Woods would get saved, then the kingdom would prevail. How? Because he's rich? Because he's good at playing golf? If only God needs him. No, 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 no. No, Tiger Woods needs God. And so do you and so do I. How difficult, and I'm not going to church it up or make it softer for any of us. It's difficult for self-dependent, self-reliant, self-proving, educated, gifted, attractive people to realize their utter bankruptcy compared to the holiness and beauty of God. It's difficult. It's very hard. And Jesus, as we talked last week, given to hyperbole, he goes on and says this, But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He said it twice emphatically. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you you can read commentators who are trying to water this down a bit saying, well, there's an eye of the needle was an entrance into Jerusalem that, you know, the camels would have to condescend and get down and go through. Um, And other people would say that a camel is a rope made of camel hair. And so taking a little needle and getting the rope through it, people are trying to make it smaller. Either way, I mean, have you ever been in a fight with your spouse, ladies, most of the time, where he's totally busted and so he starts fighting about something else? So we're like, amen, mm-hmm. And some of you guys are like, she does it. <laughs> Regardless of whether it was a rope and a needle or a gate and a camel or an actual camel and a needle eye, the point is it is nearly impossible by itself or actually impossible by itself for it to make it through. A miracle needs to happen. 
The only way for it to happen is for a miracle to happen. Only way. The only way for me to enter the kingdom, for you to enter the kingdom, is for God to do a miracle. That's a thing we miss. We think people need church. No, people need God. They need the miracle of God that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. They need to know that we are dead in our sin, separated from God, deserving of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, because the motive, because of his great love for us, did something we could not do so that all of us camels through Christ can make it through that needle eye. It's good news, right? Yeah. Thank you. All right, we're alive now. Now I can start my sermon. Let's go back. No, I'm kidding. All right, so, you know, let's say amen. I was like, I'm working up here. <laughs> I love how Mark, get, and they were exceedingly astonished. So they, they went from being amazed to exceedingly astonished. I mean, perplexed. I mean, they, as we say, their mind was blown. And they said to him, then who can be saved? We can't get a camel through an eye of a needle. How can we be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with, not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's why God is the hope of salvation. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that takes hearts of stone and does miraculous surgery and replaces it with hearts of flesh. That's why he's worthy of our worship. That's why we're created to find enjoyment in him. With man it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. For that neighbor who is atheist and hates God, all things are possible with God. For that parent who is dying, who's hard-hearted, all things are possible with God. For that child that is wayward and obsessed with sin, all things are possible with God. That cultivates then worship and prayer and dependence and fasting because we need God to move. Peter King it, missing the point. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> okay. At least I'm not the only confusing speaker out there. If God in the flesh says something and people are listening, are like, didn't hear that. There's still hope. See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Underline that. See, we love the land, yes, family, yes, persecution, pass, hard pass. Make it painless, make it, make it fun. Make it good. If it doesn't feel good, I want out. If you see how the gospel explodes in the, in, in the book of Acts that they were sharing with each other as they had need, what was taken from them was then provided both in this life and in the next. But along, that came, along came with that is persecution, being put to death because of their faith. And so Jesus is forcing once again for the evaluation of the economy of God in his kingdom to be juxtaposed. It means compared with our economy of this life and this world. 
So even Peter, Peter's like, okay, camel stuff I don't really get. That's astonishing. But we left everything. We left it all. And Jesus is like, okay, you're still missing the point. The point isn't what you have or what you've given up, what you do or you do not do. The point is without complete dependence, utter dependence on the hope of the gospel of Jesus that none of us, none of us have any hope. Verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, the challenge that we find in understanding the concept of biblical community is that we are all entrenched in a context and culture that cultivates consumerism. What what are you providing for me? What are you doing for me? How are you helping me? Me, me, me. That's the first problem, and what's going on in this is just the addiction to me. The beauty of the gospel is it liberates us, it frees us from the consummation of always worrying about what is in it for me, and instead begins to shift our eyes to the one in whom we have only hope. The ultimate thing dealing with wealth, and all of us have it, is, is really coming to grips with the fact that no matter what we have or what we've earned or what we've accomplished, that that is not what makes us right with God. But ultimately, when we're talking about wealth and possessions, we need to ask better questions. Because ultimately, it's not about what you have, but what, what has you? What holds you? What, what captures your attention and your affections and your loyalties and your life? So it's not about what you have, it's about what has you. And to be fair with my friends who are wealthy, like really wealthy, the struggle that they've been honest about is it gives you this illusion of power that you can pay your way out of things or you can get things or that who really cares what other people think or do. It gives this illusion of independence that we don't really need to depend on anyone else. It gives an illusion of self, self-sustainment. That we are able on our own, once we get so much, to not need to be dependent on the provision of God. And see, we, we don't talk about that. You either have churches that are just down on the wealthy and guilting them to give more, or you have those who just give full permission to like, sure you need six houses. You know, one jet's nice, but two is way better. And I understand tax write-offs, and I understand business expenses, and I think it's possible to own a plane and love God, but it's hard. I think it's more challenging. I was far more prayerful back when I had a couple hundred bucks left in my bank account than now that I have an emergency fund. Doesn't mean I'm bad for having an emergency fund, I think it's wise. But my fears have changed. I used to love hanging out with my friends with money when I didn't have much and say, man, I got 37 bucks still in my checking account. What do you have in savings? I don't have one of those. And they're just like, like they're getting scared for me and God's always providing. I, I don't advocate that as the way forward unless that's a unique calling. I don't advocate that. 
However, at the same time, there was a lot of freedom and liberty and grace. I was meeting uh, in this past week, I was in Reno for the Acts 29 West Conference. And I'm sitting there talking to this short white guy named Tommy. He's wearing this fat, flat-billed hat. He's like, say, man, what's up? I'm like, say, dude, what it do? You grew up in A-Leaf, I can, I can slang it up, or as we say, chop it up. And I said, what are you doing? He's like, man, I'm church planning. I said, where? He said, Crenshaw, outside of Los Angeles. Have you ever heard of the movie, uh, Boys in the Hood? That's Crenshaw. Little white dude. Say, man, what's up? You want to chop it up? I'm like, where are you planting Crenshaw, guess what my first question was? Why? I mean, I love God, but holy cow. He's like, man, the Lord's given me favor with the people there. So my wife's African-American. She grew up in the South, involved in the NAACP. And because I came in Anglo, white, they know I'm not part of anybody's gang, and so they're trying to figure me out. And he said, they've given me unique favor the Lord's given me unique favor with the different, I mean, block by block, you've got the Crips, and then you have the Bloods, and then you have the Crips, different, different cliques who war with each other, and he's right in the middle of it, preaching the gospel. And I said, so like, you live outside and like drive your family in for church? So, I mean, I could wrap my brain around that a little bit. So like, no, man, we, we bought a house in Crenshaw. Well, the answer to the why is because of Jesus. And as he told me his story, guess what that made me want to do? Give him money. Because out of our wealth, out of our abundance, we can be a part of what God's doing. We can be a part of what, what the kingdom, as it's expanding, we get to be a part of it. I don't know if you've ever tried to do a job with the, the wrong tool. Uh, I was, uh, we owned a house in Brenham. We were moving and rebuilding the fence. I went with my friend Don Tenney, uh, who's a member here at the church, and he's really good at construction stuff. And he, he went out to work on, started hammering new pieces up, and I pull out my little hammer. had like a little wood handle and like a little head on it. It's like, deek, deek, deek. You know, it might have been good for like chiseling little rocks. He pulled out his big old hammer, like waiting. He's like, you know, he hits it and, like nails going after two hits or whatever. And so the first day I was sitting there, I was just I was trying to keep up with him. And finally hit the and the head flew off. And so I had to go get the right tool. You see, I think we need to come back to our money and possessions and view them as tools given to us by God for the purpose of God, God's kingdom. That money is a necessary tool, but we do not need to allow that to become God. It is a consideration, in the same way I need to look at my gas gauge, if I'm driving somewhere and the sign says, last gas station for 85 miles, you're going to check your gauge. We need fuel for the engine to go. Money is a fuel that God uses to expand his kingdom, but money is a horrible God that will deceive you and never, ever be satisfying. One of my wealthy friends I asked, I said, hey, what's it like having a lot of money? He's like, it's like cocaine. He's never done it, but he's worked with addicts, and he said... 
it's just never enough. If you live for that, it'll, it'll betray you, and it's never enough. There's always a desire and want for more and more. Jesus understanding that, saying this is a huge block. You know, people don't like churches talking about hell, but Jesus talked a lot about hell in the Bible. But guess what he talked about more than hell in the Bible? Money. Stuff. Possessions. The more we believe we're building our kingdom on earth, the more we won't long and hunger for God's kingdom. The more we believe and look in the mirror and congratulate ourselves on our success, the less we'll be dependent on God. First point I want to make is this. Relying on works for righteousness, landing the plane. Some of you are like, man, you've been going a while, son. I'm good. Y'all good? You're going to lie and say no, or be honest and say no, please land the plane. Here we go. Relying on works for righteousness will always leave us lacking. We have too many blind spots. We're not meant to do it on our own. We're not made to be sufficient and complete on our own. Paul says that in Romans 1, uh, Romans 3, 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a perfect sacrifice, a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ's death is not an illustration of your value. Christ's death is a fulfillment of God's promise in showing that he is just to punish sin and he is just now to be our justifier through his son Jesus meaning that he has made a way through his son Jesus so that it is both keeping with his character of justice, yet also keeping with his character of love and mercy and grace. That the gospel of Jesus isn't for those who've patched themselves up and gotten themselves put together and then say, all right, now I'm ready to be presented. It's for those who say, the law exposes my inability. The holiness of God exposes my inability to ever match your beauty and glory. And so God did what we couldn't do through his son, Jesus. God is both just in punishment. He's justifier of our faith. We can't do it. He has, number two. Wealth is a great tool that can either be used as a profound blessing or serve as an overwhelming curse. Back in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was teaching about the sower of the seed, he talked about the seed that fell in different places on the, the road, the gravel, on the shallow soil that has lots of rocks. He talked about the, ones that, the seed that fell that grew up among thorns. And so talking about thorns, he said this, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We, that's speaking to the gospel, the false gospel, it says we can't do it on our own until we can do it on our own. Where the gospel articulates we can't do it on our own, we never can, so God did. 
That's good news. When I talk to students, especially, and I'm not picking on people that go to Texas A&M, don't whoop, um, but some of you are like inside, you're like, <laughs> yep, it's going to make you stuff it. Afterwards, you can go outside and whoop as loud as you want to. When I ask them, hey, where do you go to church? They say, we go to Breakaway, which is a Bible study with 6,000 students once a week. I, I ask them again, where do you go to church? We go to Breakaway. That's not a church. That's a Bible study. The heart behind Breakaway is to get you in a local body, to be a part of a church. See, a lot of people, they come out of college longing for the college days again for when they were tight with God because they had no real responsibility. And then they get married, and then they start working, and they work hard, and they're like, why is my heart not so warm towards God anymore? Why do I not care about God anymore? Or whatever. It's because the thorns. Unless the gospel serves as a constant weed whacker, to slap those things away, our faith will be choked out and we will be people like the Israelites who once remembered and had an experience, but once they don't feel it anymore, God's far or not true at all. That's not even the gospel. This faith to be cultivated. And so we need to start asking better questions. See, a lot of us live with how much sin can I get away with and still be okay with God? A better question is, what needs to be removed from my life or added to my life that I might enjoy God more? What's in my life that's hindering? What addiction or belief or habit or schedule is inhibiting me from pursuing and knowing and enjoying God? And then valuing intimacy with Him enough to begin to fall forward. Through confession, through dependence on God, through biblical community, through seeking help, What's robbing my joy? But to be fair, Jesus in, in here's the problem. Jesus never says don't be wealthy. Some people are just going to be wealthy. Some people were born into wealth. Some people, God gives them an idea and it just blows up and it works. And so, I mean, that's the deal. It's like, I don't, I don't think that it's, I'm not coming, in order, nor do I think Jesus is coming and saying, look, if you have money, you need to get rid of all of it. Because you read later Paul's instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. And I think this instruction to the rich in the days, the instruction and responsibility of us, collectively as a church, we are a rich church. For the size of church we are, the budget we have is a good budget. If everyone actually tithed, it would probably grow by at least a third. Like if each of us actually gave 10%, it would be through the roof. And I'm not down on you. We are where we are. And I want you to have affections for God more than appeasing any guilt by just throwing money at it. That's what we do out here anyways, right? We just throw money at problems. I want your affections for God to be so overwhelming as you grow in him that he has ownership of your checkbook, your wallet, your stocks, and your real estate. That's his work. But he gives instruction, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, so I'm charging you, all of us, rich people, us, not to be arrogant or haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Anything good you have, from God. Thank you, God. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You want to be truly alive? 
then don't hold on to this one. You want to be truly blessed and wealthy? Then be generous. And this isn't some health and wealth slot machine type thing with, if you put in more dollars, more money will come out. No, God isn't an ATM machine with unlimited pass. God is the provider of all things good to be enjoyed. So the next time you get in your pool in the backyard and there's a leaf in it, you're like, oh, leaves. Say, God, thanks for the pool. Take it with thanksgiving. Be generous with it. Stop being greedy and selfish, but rather be liberated so that you could really not be held by what holds you, which is stuff. You can steward that which God has given. The last thing I want you to hear is this. The invitation of Jesus, it does require a lot. We always say it's a free gift. It's free. But so much will be given to those who trust him. See, most of us, we, we have this superstition that if we do good stuff, God's like Santa. That if we do good things, he'll give us good things back. But the promise of the gospel isn't good things from good things. The promise of the gospel is we get God himself. We enjoy God. And all that's been given points back to him. And is a reminder of him. And anything that's hard or hurtful reminds us of our need and the world's need for him. Is your marriage struggling? You might need good counseling, but you also need Jesus in the middle of it. That's the only way you'll be able to forgive and rebuild trust. Are you struggling with addictions? Your spouse's anger or your accountability group is not going to be enough to compel you towards liberation. But understanding the blood-bought purchase of Jesus on the cross will be something that then evokes in you this hope that that chain has been broken and that a thank you is to be lived out. The only way, the only way we can enter into God's kingdom is through full dependence on Jesus. And last week at our family meeting, I led us through a time of prayer, and I'm going to do that today as a church. I'm going to ask the band to come back before we take the Lord's Supper. And just where you are, close your eyes and bow your heads.